Pastor Matt for leading that. And uh, a million thank yous to all of the people who were in back there with all these kids. They are heroes in my book, so thank you for their selfless service of us all. If you have a Bible, um, go ahead and grab it. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you. Um, We are going to be in Amos chapter 7, the book of Amos chapter 7. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, Amos is found on page 769 of the church Bible. Amos is uh, what we consider a minor prophet, one of the prophets whose book is not as big as the other ones, uh, but his message is no less valuable. So um, we are going to be in Amos chapter 7. We've made our way through six chapters already. And as is our typical diet, we work through books of the Bible a bit at a time, and uh, that's not going to change today. We're here in Amos chapter 7. As I mentioned earlier, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. So what we're going to do is I'll read the whole chapter, Amos Amos 7, and then ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then just work through it together. So Amos chapter 7, this is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall, built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to hear, bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword. And Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go. Flee away from the land of Judah to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary. It is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, Go, 
Prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Let's pray. Father, will you give us your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word and to apply it to our life. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you are speaking to us today. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. John Huss was born somewhere around 1370 A.D. in Bohemia, what is today Czechoslovakia. Huss earned two university degrees and became a priest. He was an intelligent man, a fierce Bible student, and eventually became one of the greatest preachers of his day. During his days in university, John Huss discovered in the Bible that Scripture has authority over the church, that every Christian is a member of the body of Christ, that God's salvation granted to sinners comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he discovered that Jesus Christ was the head of the church. Well, this was not the teaching of the Christian church in John Huss's day, and so he called for reform. He spoke out against the Pope. He spoke out against the church taking money in order to atone for the sins of people. He translated the Bible into the common language of the people, and he published a book on the church drawn from his findings in Scripture. The preaching of John Huss caused quite a stir, as you can imagine. The church of his day accused him of heresy. And so they brought him before a council. They promised him safe passage to a council where he would be able to defend his positions. But soon after his arrival, John Huss was arrested. And he was told that if he didn't recant, that he would be killed. Huss stood on Scripture. God is my witness that the principal intention of my preaching and all my other acts or writings are solely that I might turn people from sin. And for that truth of the gospel that I wrote, taught, and preached, I am willingly glad to die today. The church stripped John Huss of his priesthood, cut his hair, put a dunce cap on his head, and led him to the stake where he was burned. They dumped his ashes in the Rhine River to prevent any veneration of that man. The word hus in Bohemian means goose. And according to some reports, before John Huss died, he said to his executioner, you are now going to burn a goose, but in a century you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. And a hundred years later, a German monk, who himself was embroiled in a controversy over the gospel and the church, 
happened to stumble upon the sermons and extant writings of John Huss. That reformer, Martin Luther, drew strength from Huss's expositions and was greatly helped in his battles to restore the church of Jesus Christ to the truth of Scripture. Neither John Huss nor Martin Luther wanted to destroy the church. Rather, they called for reform. They called for repentance. They prayed that God would give grace to change hearts. These reformers, persecuted as they were, stood in a long line of intercessors, prophetic voices, bold and humble intercessors who stand on God's truth, whatever the cost. Those who were persecuted but kept preaching. Those whose ministries were plagued by controversy but kept praying. And toward the front of that noble line stands the prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 7, we read about three visions and one bout of heavy opposition. This chapter provides us with a helpful insight into the ministry of the Jewish prophet from the 8th century B.C. Provides us helpful instruction and admonition for Christians of all ages. For it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who said that when you bear witness about me, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And Huss and Luther learned that some of that hatred would come from within the very church that they gave their lives to serve. Here's the big idea this morning. God will preserve both a humble, bold, praying people through opposition. That God will preserve a bold, humble, and praying people through opposition. We'll, we'll, we'll see that in three parts. First, we'll look at the prophet's prayer and the Lord's mercy in verses 1 to 6. And then we'll see the people's crookedness and the Lord's judgment in verses 7 to 9. And then finally, we'll see the prophet's boldness and the Lord's message in verses 10 to 17. So let's get to work in verses 1 to 6, the prophet's prayer and the Lord's mercy. If you could turn there again. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. It devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So these are two of what will become five visions that the prophet Amos sees. In the Bible, that God often reveals himself to his prophets in visions and dreams foretelling of what he's going to do or what he might do. And in this first vision, Amos sees the Lord forming locusts when the latter growth is just beginning to sprout. And we're told that it's the latter growth after the king's mowings. 
So the king would have come and taken his share first to feed his family and feed the troops. And this would have come, this locust swarm would have come at the end of the rainy season, March, April time frame. And a swarm of locusts at this time of year would have meant utter tragedy for the farmers. The dry season was coming. If locusts devoured the young crop, there would be no yield come harvest time. And the people would starve and the livestock would starve. And Amos, who is a farmer himself, would have likely felt a very particular compassion on these people. And so he prays. Amos intercedes on behalf of God's people. He says, oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The prophet's heart is revealed here. Lord, please forgive. Amos stands in the gap and prays to the Lord for mercy. And in this way, Amos is acting much like Abraham, interceding for Sodom. He's acting like Moses, interceding for Israel. Jeremiah and Daniel, interceding for Judah. Jesus, praying for Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul, praying for the Jews. Amos, the prophet, is Amos, the intercessor. And then in verse 4, we see another vision. The Lord comes in judgment of fire. This fire, we're told, is so great that it devours the great deep. It eats up the land. This is not a normal fire. This is God's judgment on His people. It would have been utterly devastating. Everything the people had to live on, their land, even their very houses would have been destroyed. And again, the prophet is stirred in verse 5. O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Already we have seen in the book of Amos that a prophet is one who laments. And here we see that a prophet is one who prays. Intercessory prayers, Pastor Matt talked about earlier, is where one person prays for another person. An intercessory prayer is not something that is reserved for prophets or for a special class of Christian. The Bible teaches that every Christian is called to intercede. 1 Timothy 2.2, the Apostle Paul urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We read of Paul thanking the Philippian church for helping him in ministry by prayer. He tells the Corinthian church specifically, you must help us by prayer. Every Christian is called to intercession. You know, one of my favorite things that we do in members' gatherings is we take the membership roll, we print it out, and we hand it to every person. And we go around the room, and every member of this church has a chance to share a prayer request. And we write them down, with the goal, of course, being that we would be praying for one another. And some of you just bless me when, with great courage, you are transparent and just share your requests with your church family. Share the afflictions and difficulties that are going on in your life. And let me assure you all of something. There is nothing more effective in growing this church in maturity and health than preaching the Bible 
and praying together. You can build a lot of things in a lot of ways, but to build a church, you need to preach and you need to pray. There are two wings on the aircraft. And so I encourage you, especially the members of this church, come to the prayer meetings on the last Sunday of each month and pray with us. Pray together with us. I, I, I cannot think of a better use of your time on a Sunday night than to be in the household of God with the people of God praying to God. Whatever else we do or whatever else we become as a church, may the elders of this church see to it that we are a people who pray. We're not going to get everything right. promise you that. But I do promise you this, that if we are people who pray together, who commit to the preaching of God's word, we're going to be okay. God will see to it that we're okay. And if we are to have any effect for the gospel in Piqua, Ohio, it will be because we have committed to proclaiming the excellencies of Christ and to praying for the mercies of God. After all, the Bible does promise us that the prayers of the righteous have great power. Why does God, who as we have already heard, is sovereign over all things, who has decreed the end from the beginning, why does God call his people to pray? Well, I think the answer has to be at least in some part in verses 3 and 6. Because God answers the prayers of his people. The Lord relented concerning this. Almighty God heard Amos' prayer and responded. Know this, dear Christian. You've heard it twice today already. When you pray, your God hears you. And a question that you might be wondering or may have wondered in the past is, if God is truly sovereign over all things and decreed the end from the beginning, then why pray? Like, did, did Amos' prayer change God's mind? Would God have sent the locusts in the fire had Amos not prayed for Israel? I mean, God is sovereign over all things. He has ultimate decisive control over all things. He has decreed all things. And so therefore, why pray? What's the point? Wouldn't that be like pausing a movie in the middle of it and praying that it ends the way you want it to end? That seems pointless. Well, the short answer is, God tells us to pray. That's why we pray. Jesus prayed. It is true that God has decreed all things from before the beginning of time. And it is true that God has willed both the means and the ends to bring about His will. So God has willed the end, but He has also willed the means to get to the end. He has willed that He would raise up a people who would pray to Him and He would respond to the prayer and accomplish His will. So far from the sovereignty of God demotivating prayer, the sovereignty of God actually motivates prayer. Because if God weren't sovereign, then why pray? That's the real question. If God doesn't have control over all things, then why pray? We pray because God is sovereign. We pray because God has power to bring about His will. 
And so, Christian, whatever difficulty you have in wrapping your mind around predestination and election and the sovereignty of God, you are never closer to understanding those doctrines than when you're praying. Prayer does not change God's mind. To reveal the glory of His grace, to reveal Himself as the author of life and the fountain of all good, God has willed to raise up a people who pray, and He has willed that He would respond to those prayers and bring about His will. This is why the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. So all of that to say, pray. Pray big, pray bold, and pray like crazy. Pray that God's will would be done. Amos prayed for Israel and God showed mercy. The Lord spared his people the utter devastation of locusts and fire. But still, God is just and he will not ignore evil. He will deal with it, which is what we see next. And Amish's next vision, where he sees a plumb line. Let's look up reading of verse 7. This is what God showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. A plumb line is a string with a weight attached at the bottom, which is used in construction to determine the objective straight up and down, making sure that walls remain true vertical, plumb. Determines if a wall is leaning to one side or to the other. And in this third vision, Amos sees the Lord standing beside a wall that was built straight. And maybe, maybe the people couldn't see whether it was leaning this way or that because they were too close to it. And so the Lord is standing next to this wall and he has a plumb line in his hand. He says in verse 8, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. The Lord is going to measure His people. He is bringing His objective standard of plumb, of right, against them to check it. And I want you to notice that the plumb line is in God's hand. This is God's standard. This is God's law, which is unchanging inflexible. God's standards are not affected or changed by the seasons and times. He is not influenced by the whims and sensibilities of man. Today, we are fond of the phrase, your truth. Tell me your truth. This is a misnomer. God is the only being who has His truth. There is only God's truth. The rest of us must align ourselves to Him and to His truth. You don't have a truth. You have opinions. But God has a truth. 
the truth. This is something that everyone who is involved in construction clearly must understand. A carpenter doesn't have his truth. A structural engineer cannot claim, well, this wall is plumb to me. That's my truth. Physics doesn't care about your truth. Gravity doesn't care about your truth. If the wall is leaning, it's a danger to the people who go in the building. And so Israel could not justify her crookedness. God set his plumb line. She built her wall, but she was crooked. And perhaps she couldn't see the crookedness because she was so close to it. And so God is telling her, you must realign yourself with what is plumb, my plumb line. God has set his plumb line in the midst of his people, and they hadn't measured up. That's why he says, I will never again pass by them. Which is likely some reference to the Passover, which Pastor Matt mentioned earlier. That God passed over his people because he saw the blood of the lamb, but he's not passing over, passing by these people. He will no longer turn a blind eye to unrepentant sin. Only those who live by the standards of his standard will be reckoned his people. And so the high places where Israel engaged in false worship will be made desolate. Her sanctuaries will be laid waste. And it says that the house of Jeroboam will fall by the sword. False worship, which the king had encouraged, was like a leaning wall. And it was going to fall. And great would be the fall of it. If you're a Christian... If you're not a Christian, sort of still trying to figure out what that is, I'm glad you came to church today. It's not likely that you're going to hear this anywhere else, so I'm glad you're here. The Lord, your creator, has set a plumb line in your life. His standard of what is true, of what is right, and what is wrong. And my dear friend, if you do not align your life with what is true according to God's standards, your life will fall apart. Now look, I'm quite certain that you've constructed your life according to what seems best to you. That's what Israel did. And they couldn't see that their wall was leaning because they were so close to it. But I must tell you, if you have built this life without God's standards, it is out of plumb. It has a dangerous lean. And unless you do something about it, It will fall. And I want you to know that everyone in this room was once exactly where you are. Crooked. With a dangerous lean. About to lose everything. But God in his mercy came to us just as God is coming to you now with a plumb line. And he opened our eyes to the crookedness of our life. And we saw what I pray you see, which is that you haven't measured up. But that's just it. This is what gets Christians so excited. None of us measure up. That's why Jesus came. You see, God's plumb line isn't a string. 
It's his son. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, perfect according to God's inflexible standards. And he gave his life as a sacrifice for all the crooked structures of this world. He took the fall for the crookedness of his people. God laid our sin on him and he died. And God raised him from the dead. And when a crooked sinner turns to him, believing that he is the Lord, their crookedness is made straight. His perfect life is credited to sinners as if they had lived the perfect life. So sinner, it does not matter how crooked your wall is. It can be made straight by God, by trusting in Jesus Christ. Do that today. Don't leave here with the walls of this house still crooked. Cornerstone, as glorious as this reality is for all of us, it is simply something the world does not want to hear. The world does not want to know that their walls are crooked. The message that God gave to Amos was not well received by many in Israel. And the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not always going to be well received by the world either. The sad reality is that mankind is bent in on himself such that he loves darkness more than light. And in the second half of Amos 7, the prophet is confronted with serious opposition by the high priest Amaziah. Amos is bold and Amos is humble. And his response to this opposition is instructive for us today. Let's have a look at verses 10 to 17 once more. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, came to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and said, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear his words. For I'll tell you what Amos said. Jeroboam's going to die by the sword, and Israel's going to go into exile away from his land. And then Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away from the, to the land of Judah, and eat bread there. Prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. It is a king's sanctuary. It is a temple of the kingdom. And Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Well, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile, away from its land. The message of God's grace rarely goes forth without opposition. And I know it's not popular to talk about this these days, but there is a devil. There are forces of darkness. And the fact that we don't talk about them much doesn't make them any less real. There are forces at work today that do not want the word of God to increase and multiply on the earth. And as the kingdom of God increases and the kingdoms of this world decrease, there will be opposition. And Amos found some of that opposition within the priesthood. Priests, so you know, were meant to be the men that God chose to teach his people his word. To, to, to serve them, to love them, to care for them. But in Israel they had become corrupt. Amaziah was a high priest at Bethel. 
which would have very likely been a very powerful position, which would have made him very wealthy. And he sends word to the king about Amos' preaching and says, Amos is he's accusing him of sedition. Amos is conspiring against you. Now we know the reality that Amos was sent by God to call the king to repentance, to save the king from God's judgment. But Amaziah accuses him of sedition. And the high priest confronts Amos to his face. Tells him, see her, get out of here. Go home. Do your business back in Judah. Prophesy there. We don't want your rhetoric around here. Never again preach in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary. We do things the king's way here. We protect the king's interests here. You must understand that Amos' life is in danger. I don't, I don't know what you know about ancient kings, but they're not generally fond of rebukes. And whereas Israel's king and Israel's high priest and Israel's, Ezra as a nation should have heeded the words of Amos, repented of their sin, the king, the high priests, the people hardened their hearts. They rejected the Lord's prophet. Beloved, rejection from the world comes with the territory. The Lord Jesus was upfront about this. He told his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as a serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And God did speak through the prophet Amos. And his response is both bold as it is humble. He tells Amaziah, I didn't grow up as a prophet. Daddy wasn't a prophet. I didn't go to prophet college. I don't have a prophet degree. I have a word from the Lord. I didn't choose this job. I was just fine being a farmer, being a sheep herder. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go. And you want me to go? I'll go. But not until after I've said what God sent me here to say. His response is a bit like the response of the apostles in Acts chapter 5, when they were commanded by the officials to stop preaching in this name, Jesus and their response was very similar. We must obey God rather than man. Amos did not derive his sense of authority in who he is. Notice, Amos's authority is in God's word. And for this reason, God, Amos can be both humble and bold. Humble because the message that he speaks isn't coming from him. 
and bold because the message he speaks is coming from God. That's why he says in verse 16, Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Church, you share this in common with your brother Amos. You have no authority to tell anyone what to do with their life. Heck, half of us don't even know how to take care of our own life, let alone tell others how to live theirs. Your responsibility is simply to say, hear the word of the Lord. Amos was taken from following the flock and told by God to go. You and I were taken from following the world and told by God to go. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So be humble. And be bold. And pray like crazy. This is the call of God on your life. You are going to face opposition. You are going to get rejected. There are going to be Amaziahs. And so how are you going to be bold and humble and endure opposition? By remembering God has set a plumb line in the midst of his people. Jesus Christ is the plumb line of God. And Jesus Christ is how you can be humble and bold. Humble because you know that you haven't measured up, but bold because he has in your place. Humble because these are not your words, but bold because they are his words. Humble because you know the results aren't up to you. But bold because you know the results are guaranteed by him. This humble boldness will drive you to your knees in prayer. Calling upon the mercy of God like Amos. Calling upon the Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is the call of God on your life. Humble, bold prayers with God's word in your heart and on your lips. May you be encouraged by the words of John Huss, who put it like this. Therefore, faithful Christian, seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Learn the truth. Love the truth, tell the truth, live in the truth, and defend the truth, even to death. Amen. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your mercy. You have willed both the means and the ends to accomplish your plans to exalt your Son in the earth. And what a privilege it is that we have been chosen by you to be a part of it.
And may we never neglect to appreciate and thank you for choosing us as your people. We confess, Lord, that we have not lived humbly. More often, Lord, we've been arrogant. And I wonder if that's the reason we don't pray like we ought. Lord, forgive us our selfish independence. Will you give us grace to enable us to bring our lives in line with your truth? We confess, Father, that we have not lived boldly either. We've caved into the fear of man. Lord, forgive us. Will you grant that we would fear God more than we fear man? Will you give us the boldness that we see in our Savior who faced opposition and stood faithful in you? Lord, send us from this place with a renewed appreciation of your sovereign grace, with a humble boldness to preach Christ, to pray like crazy until Christ is all and in all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then I can assure you, you have been pardoned of those sins. We read of that pardon in Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done for us, by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Amen.